You know, one of the things that I always say about coming out is, yes, it is important to come out, but the most important thing is to figure out how to come together or to bring together all of who we are and who we can be as a community, right? That it wasn't just for me to be out as a gay person. I needed to figure out how to put the rest of my identities together. Welcome everyone to this week's Warrior Queen podcast. And we have a wonderful, exciting guest. And of course, many of you may have heard her before. I'd like to introduce you to Shivagami Subaraman. She is the founding director of LGBTQ at Georgetown. And she had been the head of Resource Center from 2008 to 2021. She has been a keynote speaker at several national conferences for expanding the circle, creating change on racial and social justice and prejudice. Her journey is something that we would all like to hear today. She is also a feminist, ethnic, queer theories. So I'm going to get started with asking her to tell us a little about her life before she came to America. And she think came in 1980s. If you could start with saying, where did you come from? And what was your early years that you experienced in America? Thank you. Thank you, Swati, for having me on this show. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, so I grew up in what was then called Madras, today Chennai, India. I still, I still persist in calling it Madras. <laughs> so I grew up there and, you know, I came from a solidly middle class family, but um, my family was very involved in the freedom movement. Um, so I was deeply influenced by all of that. I also, most importantly, came from a long line of women who were warriors. <laughs> so um, my great grandmother, uh, for example, was one of those women who fought a lot against casteism in 1900s India. Um, there were many women in my family who refused, you know, to do a lot of the things that they were expected to do in those days, right? And there were many of them were highly educated, fought to get education. So I did, I do want to say that because I think there's often this notion that I became a feminist when I arrived in the US. <laughs> and I don't think that was true. I agree with you. I have to first start with saying, not all, but a large part of Tamilian women from the South have a matriarchal li lineage rather right. than a patriarchal. Right. So I am not surprised, but I'm happy you're sharing that. Right. And I'm very proud of that part of our Indian heritage. Right. So I, I always like to say, you know, I arrived a feminist. I was also deeply shaped, you know, by a couple of important things, right? Like when I was a teenager, uh, DMK came to power. And so it put a lot of my own privilege as an upper caste Hindu um, into context, particularly because of those politics. So I was always very deeply embedded in the politics of the time, in trying to understand privilege and trying to understand religion and caste and all of those things, right? Like those were a very much a part of who I was. Um, 
the reason I, I applied to come to the US was both personal and on a whim, actually. At a very young age, I did get married and I got divorced. Um, and in those days, this was 
what you felt when you first came here. How was it so different from what you had imagined? And how did you feel when you had to reprove yourself in a country that at that time did not understand, and maybe even now sometimes many don't, where I'm sure you were met with people saying, India, snake charmers, elephants. Absolutely. And how do you speak such good English? Correct. The three standard questions. Yep. So give me a little bit about that, especially from someone as dynamic as you. I could I could think you'd go under the sheets and scream loudly. But yeah, no. uh, well, I didn't I, I I think I screamed outside of the sheets actually. Um so I came here to go to grad school at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And I I was an English major, so I did come to do a PhD in English. And yes, you know, the first question was, so how do you speak such good English, you know, for, for an Indian? And I was, of course, cheeky. And I was like, well, for an American, you all speak good English. Because, you know, <laughs> we were all brought up to think the British English was the best. Right? Exactly. Um, so it was hard. It was very hard. I was the only person of color in the department for a very long time. There was absolutely little understanding of where I came from, let alone where I was trying to go. But it was the Midwest, and the Midwest is a very special sort of place in the US. And in some ways, I feel I'm glad I went to the Midwest, even though it was very hard, because the people around were genuine in their ignorance. Let me put it that way. So they didn't really know. And so they asked a lot of these crazy questions, right? But they also asked from a place of care and, I, and, a, and a place of wanting to know and of curiosity. Um, so I felt that it was okay for me to talk to that, to talk to that, to, to, to talk about where I'm coming from and why I came to the US and what I was in search of. What I was not prepared for essentially though was white academic US institutions. I mean, I, and the politics of, of that. Um, so I actually specialized in African-American literature. You know, that was my area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it spoke to me, that literature spoke to me very powerfully in its grief, in its sorrow and in its triumph. And I think I drew a lot of parallels for it, both in my personal life, but also from this sense of being a colonial uh, country. And yet, you know, my career, as it turned out for the next 20 years, fell apart because I was Asian teaching African-American and the academy was just not ready for it. Um, So I was seen as not having either the authenticity or the authority to do that work. And so long story short, I really had to leave teaching behind even though that was what I loved and that's what I, I was passionate about. In many ways, I had to leave it behind because I, I just couldn't find my voice in that, in that time. I think it has shifted enough now that there is a way for us now to talk about identity politics, to talk about the place of South Asians in this racial binary of black and white. Um, but at that time, there was nothing. You know, There wasn't even black, right? There was just white. And the canonical literature was very much in place. And I was this little brown thing, you know, teaching African-American literature. You know, everyone thinks, you know, you come to the US and you have this very successful career. I, I wouldn't say mine was, you know, because I, I really had to leave it behind. And I didn't have enough mentors and I didn't have enough of my own political savvy at that time 
to know how to negotiate those racial politics, especially within the higher education context. So, so I really like that comment which you said because I just spoke on it at UNLV just last week, the voice, the female voice or the LGBTQ voice. And I told everyone, till you have self-advocacy, you have nothing because right. like you, all of us came in our early twenties and did not have the political savvy or the mentorship or the voice. Right. And we didn't really fit into anything because right. we were too educated to yeah. be really speaking about how we are uh, you know, marginalized. We were too successful, but we were told keep our head down and work. Uh, don't be aggressive. That was all part of cultural Asian heritage. And as you were studying, um, what I see that you laid out the first national model of its kind where you implemented the intersectional LGBTQ system. And it was the first of its kind in this country. In a how, Catholic institution, yeah. Right, right. So how did you, you know, go from English major to African studies to LGBTQ? I, I think, of course, there's a connection, but I'd love you to tell us about it because it's uh, very interesting to just hear about a brown woman's journey and that too um, in the Midwest. So it was life, you know. <laughs> and a constant process of reinvention of who I was, right, and who I wanted to be. So I did get remarried. Um, so I married an, a man, and he was a Bengali. And, you know, in those days, and that's when I first heard about Uvashivai and others, right, you know, LGBT issues was very underground, even in the U.S. It was not a very public thing. I often wondered about my own sexuality at that time, but I had no words for it, right? So I always tell the story about how I attended the first National Women's Studies Association conference in Spelman College in 1980s. And they said, oh, there is a, a lesbian caucus. And I was curious. So I thought I'd go to that. And I went there and it was all white women and they were all, you know, had really short hair and they were wearing blue jeans and, you know, they had unshaved arms and they were wearing Birkenstocks. And I ran because in that space, because at that time, in order to be a card carrying lesbian, you had to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, walk a certain way. And I was none of that, right? Like I, and I often, so I left that. I think being a survivor, I often was told, well, you know, when you meet the first kind man, you will be okay. And I did. <laughs> so I met a wonderful, loving, kind person and I loved him and we were married and we were married for 20 plus years. So it was not a short marriage at all by any means. Bravo. It was a long, happy, very equal marriage. We talked, you know, we were really good friends. We still remain good friends after the divorce. So life moved on and then I was always politically active. I wanted to stay engaged in community. So when I moved to the DC area, after I lost my job at, at here because I was Asian teaching black, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I started to do a lot of community organizing, particularly around child sexual abuse because no one was talking about it around domestic violence issues. And over a period of time, my own struggles with sexual orientation became deeper and deeper, right? Like it became clear to me who I was. 
And I began to do more work around that. And so, you know, the inevitable happened and we did get divorced. But then, you know, as life would have it, Georgetown announced the formation of the first LGBT center um, in a Catholic institution. And I had, I was working up at the University of Maryland at the time, and I wasn't really going to apply, but, you know, someone invited me and, uh, to apply and said, look, it's a, you know, and I said, an LGBT center in a Catholic institution? I said, you must be kidding. <laughs> Who's going to go apply for it? Only fools would. And they said, then, I just decided, oh, what the hell? I went to Catholic schools all my life in India. So for like a lot of us, you know, I went to Catholic schools and a Catholic college. So I'd had 23 years of Catholic education. That's what I knew best, right? So I applied, I interviewed, I got the job. Wonderful. Well, I'm not surprised because, you know, your background, I can relate to it. I mean, if I hadn't spoken to you, I would immediately say, yes, a Catholic background where you're so broad-minded that all of us have had convent school education. We've had very strong home education, progressive, yet one is still living within the society norms right. of the do's and don'ts. And then you're right. told to be progressive and I see in you the activist, fiery speaking, and yet don't really put it into play. You know, right. be that, write your books, but don't really act on it. So it's it's very commendable, but it's also been very helpful, I'm sure, to uh, generations to have been able to have a safe space, which you created at Georgetown. Right. And in Georgetown, it was hard because, you know, uh, it was it was a very political decision for the president at that time and for the Jesuits, you know, to take this stand that there must be an LGBT center. It came because of hate crimes on campus. So it did not come very easily and decades of oppression and homophobia on the campus. So I think it was a very difficult time in, the, in, in Georgetown. And then, so I came in and tried to create both community, but tried to educate people around who we are. And I think, you know, one of the things that I always say about coming out is, yes, it is important to come out, but the most important thing is to figure out how to come together or to bring together all of who we are and who we can be as a community, right? That it wasn't just for me to be out as a gay person. I needed to figure out how to put the rest of my identities together. The fact that I was Tamilian, the fact that I was Hindu, the fact that I was all of these things in the context of being gay, you know, wearing Indian clothes, which is what I wear most of the time, and to model that gay people are not just one kind, that we are everywhere. But, you know, in India itself, it has not been easy, you know, to come out to my in-laws or to came, come out to my family. Um, it wasn't easy because I had gone by then public about my grandfather. So I had lost large parts of my family. We didn't let have the language and we still don't, I think, among Desis. We, we're still very reluctant to talk about abuse. We're still very reluctant to talk about LGBT issues, although it's a lot better now than it was. I agree. I agree. In fact, LGBTQ, just before this, I was telling my, my editor that I said, do you know, um, lesbian and gay in India used to be called fairy. Right. I said, bisexual 
um, or transgender was not even called hijra, which is a term, but it was right. hij. Right. I said, so all these are very derogatory terms. Right. I said, if you were bisexual, they used to use the word ACDC. Correct. And I said, can you imagine? It, I don't think it was just being mean. There was no education of being accepting and people couldn't come out of the closet. In fact, in 1980, I had, uh, 82, I had Urvishi on my talk show, right. and uh, right. as I mentioned, and I had, um, it was spotlight on culture that I did because as a classical dancer, I did theater, music, dance. Right. And I said, how is it that we don't have the ability to come out and talk about it even today? So I see that you have used theater as well. And I wanted yeah. to ask you how you implemented that because of course art is so beautiful. And how did you use theater with the coming out? I think it's incredibly brave that you even talked about your grandfather because I know what that means in India that you're not about allowed to talk about family outside. And how did you even? Yeah, it was not, I mean, I've lost a lot of the family, right? Um, who have never understood or supported. Um, so it has been about finding, you know, home elsewhere. I mean, I always say, you know, that the problem for us as Desis is we are so hung up on this notion of family and we never ever question that might be not a sacred or safe space for many of us, and it isn't. But even in today's world, right, we, we still sort of keep uplifting this idea of the family is the sacred space, all said and done, family will do this or that. And I think that has been the most painful legacy for a lot of us, because whatever the form of, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's abuse, whether it's not being able to be who you are in your sexuality, it doesn't matter. I don't think even in today's India, we are willing to talk about family for what it can really be for a lot of people. Thank you all for being here with us today on the Warrior Queen podcast, listening to Shivagami Subaraman. This is the part one. Please return back to us in two weeks to hear her part two. Take care.